Hey there, thanks for joining us here at Compass Church, where we are making God accessible to everyone. If you have any questions or want to learn more about us as a church, head over to our website, compassbn.com. We hope this inspires you and gives you practical ways to live out your faith. Enjoy the message. Well, hey, thank you for joining me again. I am Chris, and I'm the pastor at Compass. If we haven't met, hi. And so just in the interest of getting to know me, let me tell you about a thing that used to regularly happen in my house, maybe still does. My son, Calvin, would harass his sister by poking her or something like that. And I would hear this. I would hear, Dad, will you tell Calvin to stop touching me? So I intervene and I tell him, Calvin, stop touching your sister. And then there's silence for a few seconds. And I hear this, Dad, he's still doing it. So I go in and I tell him to stop it again. And this is the point, parents, you may be aware of this. This may happen in your home. This is the point where my son instantly becomes a lawyer arguing a case before the Supreme Court. I'm not touching her, he says, and he's not. Because he's got his finger pointed at her a half an inch from her face. Now, I know he's not touching her anymore, but he's still annoying her on purpose. So I say, Calvin, Stop pointing your sister in your sister's face. So he pulls his finger in, he makes an open palm and holds that half an inch from her face. It's at this point that I realize that we are just not intellectual equals and that he has me beaten. And so I tell him this, I say, okay, move away from your sister and don't let any part of your body, breath, clothing, or anything else that originates from your person come any closer to her than four feet away. Don't speak to her or make any noises intended to be heard by her and keep these commands in effect until I specifically tell you that they are done. Now that usually does it, at least until he figures out something that I missed and he figures out some way to annoy her that doesn't fall under my strict legal demand. Sometimes people just need specificity. Whether it's because we're the type of people who intentionally want to push the boundaries or, or if we're just oblivious to what we should or shouldn't be doing, some of us need clear, specific guidelines. And that's what Jesus has been doing in the section of teaching that we've been studying in the Sermon on the Mount in our Icebergs message series. Jesus, speaking to a religious Jewish audience, has been clarifying and even redefining in some ways the law of Moses, which is what we know as the Old Testament of the Bible and what the Jews in an ancient world would have known as the law. The main thing that Jesus redefined is the purpose and intent of the law of Moses. And he did this by boiling down the 613 religious commands that were found there into two. And this is what he said in Matthew 22, 37. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And here's the key thing that Jesus says. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So love God and love your neighbor. Do this, according to Jesus, and the other 613 commands that we find in the Old Testament, in the Jewish law, they don't have any more weight because their purpose and their intent, it's taken care of. In fact, in this whole section of teaching that we've been, we've been going through, Jesus has been showing his followers and us what it means to love our neighbor, to love other people in his kingdom by contrasting what the law of Moses said with how his new kingdom ethic of love is to be lived out by people who follow him. 
And this week, at the very end of this teaching, we see Jesus giving instruction that is so specific, it wipes out any confusion or even intentional boundary pushing that we may do, like my son Calvin. Today, we're gonna see Jesus completely clarify and push his command to love our neighbor to the limit of how we are actually supposed to live it out. And it starts in Matthew 5, 43. Jesus says, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So it may come as a surprise to you to find this out, but love your neighbor is actually not a command that Jesus made up. It's a command that, that we actually find in the law of Moses in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19, 18 says this, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus may have repurposed this command, but loving others has always been part of God's heart from the beginning. But the way that the Jewish people interpreted it was pretty narrow. For ancient Jews, their neighbors were other Jews or other Israelites. And so this obligation to love your neighbor, it was interpreted strictly to mean that their responsibility was only to people who were like them. And some made this even more specific because some of them made it out to mean not just other Jews, but Jews of my particular variety. So a, a Pharisee may, may not think that all of the other Jews are his neighbors, that just other Pharisees are his neighbors. And, and there were other, there were different denominations of Judaism back then, just like there's different denominations of Christianity today. So there were lots of, of groups. So for some, it would be like saying that other Baptists are my neighbors, but Lutherans are not. I mean, just like my son Calvin saying, I'm not touching her while holding his finger literally half an inch from his sister's face. The ancient Jewish people were saying this, I am loving my neighbor. They just interpreted what a neighbor was so narrowly that they had really very little obligation to the people who weren't like them. But Jesus doesn't just quote the law in verse 43 of Matthew chapter five. He quotes a common way of thinking about who to love and who not to when he says this, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, hate your enemy was not a rule of law. It's not anywhere in the Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures, but it was an idea that was common enough that his listeners would have been familiar with this, with this saying, this idea. And some of them even believed it. There, there are some scriptural reasons they may have accepted the idea to hate their enemies. One of them we can find in Psalm 139, verse 21, where David writes this, Oh Lord, shouldn't I hate those who hate you? Shouldn't I despise those who oppose you? Yes, I hate them with total hatred, for your enemies are my enemies. That's strong stuff. And by taking this transparent and frustrated prayer that David wrote down, by taking it as actual instruction, some Jewish groups took the command to hate their enemies pretty seriously. In fact, there was a group of fundamental radicals called the Essenes, who basically operated as a Jewish terrorist group in the first century in order to overthrow the Roman government. And the Essenes believed that they were to hate Romans, who they described as children of darkness. And just like we talked about last week, it's easy to hate Romans because they're oppressing your people. At the very least, it's easy not to love them, but it's in this broader context, the idea that believing you were only commanded to love the people who are like you and that it's okay to hate your enemies. 
In that context, that Jesus gives one really big overarching command of his own. And it's, it's a command for people who are going to be his followers, who are going to make up his new kingdom. Jesus continues in verse 44. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. I think that most of us <clears throat> have probably heard this term before. Maybe we've heard someone say it to us, but it was a pretty radical thing for Jesus's listeners to hear. Love the people who are oppressing us, who are taxing us unjustly, who are taking away our rights and our dignity. And to that, Jesus says, yes, love them. So like, what is that? I mean, what is love like that? Is it a feeling? Is it a prayer? I mean, I guess I'm willing to pray for my enemies because I can always ask God to smite them or make their car break down. And that counts because that's real prayer. And I guess I can like feel a sense of general love for them because they're human beings and all human beings should have a level of, of dignity, you know, because just they're human. I mean, is that it? Well, we can look at, at Luke, who is another biographer of Jesus's life, to see how he documented the same teaching to see what Jesus said. And he says this in Luke 6.35, love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to be repaid. That actually clarifies it quite a bit, doesn't it? Loving your enemies isn't just praying for them or having a general feeling of human love and tolerance towards them. It's more than that. Loving your enemies is literally working for their good. It's helping them without any expectation of return. It's not just valuing them as human beings, but valuing and, and working toward their prosperity and their flourishing. Jesus makes it even more clear as he continues in verse 45. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. So rain in the ancient world was always seen as a huge blessing and a sign of God's love and goodness. It was an agrarian farmer society. Rain was a big deal. And Jesus is like, you know, God doesn't just send rain on you and the people who, who are like you, who agree with you, who live like you. He sends rains to the people who literally hate and reject him. Can you not see within that his generous and unconditional love expressed equally on all people? And Luke's gospel elaborates this teaching of Jesus really even more in Luke 6, 35. He says, then your reward from heaven will be very great and you will truly be acting as children of the most high for he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. God is kind to people who are unthankful and wicked, to people who are evil and ungrateful. I mean, when's the last time you were kind to someone who's unthankful, evil, ungrateful? But we are to act like children of God. And God loves people who hate him. Now, I want to take a second to poke at something unpleasant, if I can, like Calvin did to his sister. Christians have a bad habit of equating love to truth. And so this, they think that truth matters and the truth hurts. Therefore, it's okay for my way of loving others to hurt them. And sometimes we can have an attitude that says the best way to love others is to point out their sin and condemn it, to tell them that they're, they're going to hell and let them sit in that truth 
until they're ready to accept the truth of the gospel. Or we love the people who are like us in such a way that at the same time, it's kind of a powerful condemnation of those who aren't like us. And we act out this condemnation in the socially acceptable way of excluding those who aren't like us and denouncing those who don't believe the things that we believe. But there's none of that in Jesus's description of enemy love. In fact, it's the opposite. Jesus describes loving them as praying for their good and doing good things to them and good things for them. Loving them is, is giving them money, material resources and support when they need it without the expectation of repayment. Loving them is the same as God providing rain for their good, to grow their crops and to help them prosper. There's just nothing in there that indicates a cold, hard love that cuts them down with truth. And I'm not saying that because the truth doesn't matter, but because that's not how Jesus teaches us to express love. And we can see that in Jesus's next statement in Matthew 5, 46. Jesus says, if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. So check this out. The love Jesus describes for our enemies that he wants us to have is the same as the love between friends and family. It's a love that invites people into your life to sit around your table, to be invested and involved in their lives. It's a warm relational love, not a cold, distant religious love. And Jesus uses two examples to highlight this, tax collectors and pagans. And to his listeners, these two groups represented the people that they honestly hated the most those who took advantage of others, and those who were ungodly and unlike them. Tax collectors economically abused their fellow Jews by overtaxing them. And pagans were any non-Jewish people who engaged in the abominable sin of idolatry. And if these awful people, these quote-unquote awful people, love their friends and family with warmth and relational closeness, Jesus is like, why do you pat yourself on the back for doing the same thing with your friends and family? Jesus is talking about loving your enemies the same way that you love those who are closest to you. And Jesus finishes this teaching with a verse that we talked about in the very first week of this message series in Matthew 5, 48. He says, but you are to be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. We are called to be just like God. We're called children of God. But perfect may not be the best translation of what Jesus is saying here. The word translated as perfect, it also is translated in other places as whole or complete. And maybe the best way to understand what Jesus is really saying is to, is to take a look again at Luke's account of Jesus' teaching. In Luke 6, 36, Jesus says, you must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. The description of what Jesus' followers will look like, what his kingdom will look like, is that they will be people who are complete in their love for others, just like the Father is. That if there is any area for which we are striving for perfection, it should be in our love for everyone, our friends and our enemies. And so in light of this, 
we have to ask ourselves this question. Who is my enemy and how can I love them like a neighbor? I think it's a strange concept to imagine today, right? Having an enemy. I mean, who thinks, oh, I have enemies. So how can we identify those people that Jesus is talking about in our lives today? Well, who are the tax collectors and pagans in your life? Who are the people who don't believe what you believe, don't live the way that you live, and maybe even offend your morals and sensibilities? Who are the people you get frustrated with when you look at their social media posts? If I could make some suggestions based on just my own perceptions, I would say this, that the enemy of Christian Americans are Muslims, just like, sorry, the enemy of Christian Americans are Muslims, just like it was communist years ago. The enemy of Republicans are Democrats and the enemies of Democrats are Republicans. The enemies of white people in privileged positions are people of color whose ancestors were brought here on boats centuries ago against their will and who have honestly always lived in the consequences of the unending and always adapting racism that allowed those first slaves to be kidnapped in the first place. Or maybe the enemies of white people of privilege are people of color who are fleeing their land of birth to find a better life somewhere. And the only reason these, we see these people as our enemies is because of what their good might cost us in power, privilege. The enemy of the evangelical is the liberal-minded Christian who is asking hard questions. The enemy of the morally conservative church are those in the LGBTQ community. Both those who are hostile towards the church, but also those who are just looking for a way to be part of it. Can you see how we all have enemies? How there are people who are other? We must know who our enemies are if we're gonna be able to do the radical and difficult thing of inviting them to our table and loving them like neighbors. In this passage, Jesus is pointing out something that was true in his day and is unfortunately still true in our, our day as well. And that's this, that those who claim to believe in the Bible's words to love their neighbor are all too often those who hate other people. Which is why Jesus makes it so clear the extent to which we are to love our neighbor by literally loving those we feel the least obligation to love our enemies. There's no wiggle room there. And if we follow this kingdom ethic to love our enemies, there's simply no way that we won't be loving everyone else correctly. Jesus's kingdom strategy in dealing with enemies and dealing with the other and dealing with the people who we think are hurting us is not to fight, debate, exclude, or denounce them. It's to treat them like neighbors, to love them, and to hopefully love them right into his kingdom. So who is your enemy? and how can you love them like a neighbor? Let's start to answer those questions and then see how we can start living it out this week. Got one more message in the Icebergs message series next week. Um, and I really hope that you stick around as we wrap this thing up. But I genuinely hope this week that you can maybe shift your perspective about people in your life just a little bit. And you can begin to identify the people who really are your enemies and you can maybe identify ways that you can love them this week. 
Thanks again for joining us today. If you want to learn more about us as a church, get connected, need prayer, or anything else at all, head over to our website, compassbn.com.